you'd like to borrow a Bible this morning, would you raise your hand so you can follow along with us? You can just put it in the pew when you are done. While they are passing out those Bibles, I want to give you a quick heads up. The next Sunday, we're starting this uh, adoption study at our church. If you are interested in learning more about adopting, uh, you know, theologically speaking, father adopting us as his children, and also speaking about you adopting children. If you're interested in learning more about adopting children, next week uh, after church, this adoption study will be led by the Bennetts, Amanda and Elliot, and they'll be at the, the Wagoner's place. It's all in the bulletin. You can check that out. But if you want to be a part of that, give us a heads up. Let us know you want to be a part of that and, and sign up on the city so we can buy some books for you. It's going to be a great study. I really appreciate the Bennetts um, pulling that one off. It's great. Uh, Fourth of July weekend, we, we've, we've, you know, we're not sitting up there. A significant amount of our church has traveled all over the place. And I'm so glad you're here. There's two things I want to say about Fourth of July. Those who are serving in the military right now with us or in the past, we really appreciate you and your service. We want to encourage you this weekend. And also for those of you who are here this morning, all of you who are here that decided to show up this morning, we say at our church on holidays when a significant amount of people leave that there are no throwaway Sundays, which means we're not just trying to get through this and move on with our lives. There are no throwaway Sundays in our church. We believe they're all significant. So we are glad that you are here this morning. And what we're going to do is study the Word of God and ask, ask God to change us. So this is a good day that you're here. So we're in the book of Matthew. We've been going through Matthew. So if you want to turn to Matthew, we're in Matthew chapter 12. If you can't find it, it's the first book of the New Testament. Maybe look at your table of contents. We're in Matthew 12. Kind of let you know where we're at. Uh, in chapter 11, Jesus was uh, speaking to his generation and performing miracles. And his generation on a whole were indifferent to him. It's not that they had this aggressive opposition to him. But they just didn't want to follow him. They're indifferent, and Jesus talks about their condemnation. But now as we move into chapter 12, we're going to see that Jesus is not just facing indifference. He's going to face opposition from the religious leaders. So we're moving from indifference to opposition. I want you to see it. Let's all stand as I read. Matthew 12. Matthew 12, starting in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you 
who has a sheep. If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. You can see it. The center of this confrontation is all about man-made rules coming into conflict with the heart of God. Jesus and his opponents clash in such a way where Jesus' actions lead down a road of compassion and mercy, and the Pharisees and their actions lead down the roles of rules, uh, that rules, their man-made rules imposed upon people to keep them in check. And it's a common clash between man-made rules and the heart of God that you'll see today. It's a common clash that you'll see happening in a variety of churches where man-made rules tend to trump, at times, compassion and care for people. You will see this clash happening today in families where mercy is set aside in order to enforce harsh consequences. It's a common clash that you will feel in your own heart because whether you like it or not, every single one of us has this inward Pharisee I don't know, it just kind of hangs out inside of us, this inward Pharisee that sometimes wants to bring down the hammer on someone else rather than show mercy and compassion. And so what we're going to do this morning, we're going to enter this clash between Jesus and the Pharisees, and we're going to see this merciful heart of Jesus. And while Jesus is showing us this merciful heart, we know that Jesus is always teaching his followers as well by, obviously, his example. And for those who follow Jesus, which I assume is a lot of you, we also want to follow him in his heart of mercy and compassion as well. This is really, really encouraging and really, really scary at at the same time to see that we got this inward Pharisee going on. So this is going to be really good. So let's go ahead and jump on in with verse 1. At that time, Jesus, he's going to the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So the disciples, it's the Sabbath. They're, they're walking around. They're in the grain fields. And part of an Old Testament provision 
is for, that they could eat grain. Maybe there, there's actually a provision that you could go into your neighbor's yard or field and eat the grain that you can eat, get with your hands. There's also a provision that when you harvest these fields, you would not harvest the whole thing so that you would leave kind of the corners for the poor or the sojourners to come through and they could get some grain and then they could have their fill if they were hungry. So the disciples are hungry and they are simply eating and finding provision uh, from God's compassionate care. But the Pharisees see this. And you know the Pharisees, they're just trying to trap Jesus. I mean, like, what are the Pharisees doing out in a grain field? I mean, come on. They're following Jesus around. They're trying to enforce their man-made rules on Jesus, which override human need. So they bring it to Jesus' attention. Hey, Jesus, your disciples, they're violating the Sabbath. And the reason why they're saying this is because the Sabbath is supposed to be a day of, of rest from your work. The question that was debated back then is, what constitutes work? And so the religious leaders of the day try to figure out, let's try to determine and define what work is. And so these religious leaders came up with these 39 laws and 39 categories of what constituted work. And one of those categories and one of those laws is that you could not harvest on the Sabbath. And so in the Pharisees' interpretation of the law, what the disciples are doing by getting this snack is that they are harvesting on the Sabbath. Do not find that a bit ridiculous. It reminded me when I was in California. I lived out in Los Angeles before I moved to here. And my son, who's 12 now, was two at the time, and we would take him out to this place where we could pick strawberries in this mammoth field. We could pick strawberries and take them home with us. That was the way we did. And so we, we let my son pick strawberries as well. And he's two. He doesn't know what he's doing. So he occasionally would just pick them right off and just shove them in his mouth. He would. He'd just shove right there, all dirty and everything, just shove them in. Now, what if I said to my son, look at my son. Bringing in the harvest. It's ridiculous. He's not bringing in the harvest. He's just, he's just getting a snack. He's, he's hungry. It's, it's okay. And, and that's, that's kind of what the Pharisees are getting at here. Your disciples are harvesting. They, they are, they're breaking the Sabbath law. And to the Pharisees, it doesn't matter that the disciples are hungry. What matters to the Pharisees is that man-made rules are kept. Well, Jesus is going to counter this attitude. Look at his counter in verse 3 and 4. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and, and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. So there's a special bread called bread of the presence that only the priests could eat. This bread reminded the Israelites of God's sustenance. But in this one instance in the Old Testament, you have King David and his men. They're hungry. They ate the bread they were not supposed to eat. But God did not condemn them. The Bible does not condemn them. Now, the average Israelite just couldn't go up to the tabernacle or the temple and say, Oh, I'm so hungry. Give me some bread. No, you, an average Israelite could not do that. But, but David was held 
guiltless because he was God's anointed king on God's anointed mission. And in this instance, he could eat the bread and not be condemned. And you're wondering, well, why are you bringing this up, Jesus? Well, Jesus is bringing this up because he is one who showed up on the scene who is greater than David. Jesus is God's anointed king. Jesus is on God's mission. And if David and his men could eat when they were hungry, how much more can Jesus' followers eat these heads of grain when they are hungry and on God's mission? Jesus' argument is that he's greater than David, and he has the divine authority to say what can happen on the Sabbath and what constitutes work. Well, look at another analogy he gives in verse 5 or 6. Look at the other analogy. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. I've always wondered about this as a pastor. Uh, you think about the priests in the Old Testament. They're working on the Sabbath in order to facilitate worship to God. And you're like, well, if you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, then why are you working on the Sabbath? And somehow, as the priests would work on the Sabbath, even though they were technically violating the Sabbath, their special calling overrode the stipulation so the facilitation of worship could happen. Well, Jesus is saying, then how much more now that I'm on the scene? Jesus is saying, I'm not only greater than the priest, but I am greater than the temple. The temple represented God's presence. And now Jesus, God in the flesh, the great God-man, Emmanuel, God with us, is, is here. So how much more can Jesus, as the one who has authority, being greater than the temple, say what can happen and what can't happen on the Sabbath? Jesus is continuing to argue, and he finishes up the challenge. Look at verse 7 and 8. He's building this argument. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So he's saying, look, you Pharisees don't understand Hosea 6.6, that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. So here are the Pharisees. Rather than leaning in the direction of compassion and mercy, they're, they're so consumed with their ritual. In this case, it's sacrifice. But they were wrong. Jesus says, you are wrong to bring these accusations against the disciples because what they were doing was not work. It, it was not work. God has created for them to go and have this grain and they can have that on the Sabbath, it does not constitute work. In fact, the Sabbath was to be this special day that God created to bring mercy to human beings so they will find rest. And here are the Pharisees heaping up their man-made rules and creating a burden. But Jesus says, look, I am the sovereign son of man who is the Lord of the Sabbath. Not only do I fulfill the law, but I am also the divine interpreter of the law. And I can say what happens on the Sabbath and what does not happen on the Sabbath. And you Pharisees are showing no compassion. You Pharisees are showing no mercy. And I am here and I am telling you right now that what these men are doing is totally legal on the Sabbath. In fact, it's to be God's compassionate heart of mercy for the Sabbath and not your burdens. Now, I think about some of you. You have grown up, some of you, not all of you, 
Some of you grew up in religious homes where religion was overriding compassion. Some of you grew up in fundamentalist homes where the rules were that as long as you went to church three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, as long as you went to revival twice a year, as long as you didn't go to certain movies, and as long as you dressed in a certain way, you should be okay. And now I know some of you grew up in Catholic homes. And in Catholic homes, the rules were as long as you went to Mass, as long as you went through confirmation and were regular at confession, then you should be okay. But I'm just wondering, for those of you who kind of grew up in these environments, if you ever felt like no one was dealing with you as a person. No one, was address, no one was addressing the struggles that you had. They just said, look, if you just go through these religious hoops and you just go through the religious motions, then you should be fine. And if you're not fine, the problem lies with you because you're not doing enough. And it seems like in that context, there's no place for mercy. It's all about sacrifice. It's not like everybody just dealt with you and said, look, you have some issues. Let me take the gospel and work with you and encourage in you what Jesus can do in your life. It was about rules, rules, rules. And I don't want to be critical of those who may have taken you through this process in your, your, your growing up years. But that the issue is that they may kind of have this inward Pharisee within them that the problem lies with you because you're not following the rules. But as we saw last week, Jesus is saying, come to me for rest. Take my burden upon you. Learn from me. I, I will forgive you. And the yoke that I'm going to give you in following my ways is not going to be a burden. Jesus deals with us as, as individuals that are struggling. He shows mercy. And so I, I, it's interesting that those of you who grew up in these strict homes, uh, sometimes void of the gospel, when you get to be an adult you still have that with you. It's very strange. You still have that kind of that legalism, uh, ritualism with you. And, and some of you, 30, 40, 50, 60, are still trying to shake it. You're still trying to shake that Phariseeism that has been dumped on you all about going through the motions. And you're trying to say, what does it really mean to come to Christ for rest? Well, let's, let's, let's show Jesus' compassion and mercy in action. Look at verses 9 and 10. Just imagine Jesus acting this way towards you. Look at verse 9 and 10. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? Gosh, look, can you imagine that? They have these man-made rules that prohibit caring for ailments on the Sabbath unless they were life-threatening. So if you were sick and you weren't going to die, then you could wait till the next day to be treated. So right now, they, 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 they see this man. He has a deformity in his hand. And that man should be an object of the Pharisees' compassion. They say, what? 
this is a great day for you because you have this withered hand. Jesus is over here. We're going to take you to Jesus, and he's going to show you so much mercy and compassion because that's what he's all about, and he's going to heal your hand. It's going to be a great day for you, man. I'm so glad that you're here. But rather than compassion, what do they do? They talk about rules. Oh, think about it. This is a great opportunity to show compassion, and they talk about rules. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? It's like, are you kidding me? But we do the same thing. We take a command of God that is meant for our compassion and mercy, and we pile up rules upon it. Let let me show you how this works. About two years ago, my wife and I entered into this world of uh, uh, adoption. Okay, you know that. I've, I've walked with you through that. Because there's a command in James 1 27 that talks about caring for orphans in need. And one of the ways you can care for orphans in need is that you can, you can adopt them. So what I've noticed over these past two years is that God's command to care for orphans in, in need has somehow, in a very frustrating way, been twisted with human laws. So let me lay down for you some human laws concerning adoption that we have heard in our little journey here. All right, here's some rules, some adoption rules. Rule number one, you can't adopt unless you are infertile. Totally heard that. Like, nope, you got to be infertile. You can't adopt. Like, you're wrong to adopt. Like, it's bad. All right. You can only adopt a child of your own race. That's like an adoption law. Uh, You must never adopt out of birth order. You better not adopt a child over the age of two. And whatever you do, stay away from drug or alcohol-exposed children. And I've heard many more laws I could lay down with you. Now, let me tell you something. There could be very good wisdom in some of these things to think through. But what you'll notice, for those of you who are doing this adoption class and you're entering into the adoption world... What you're going to notice is that some of these things that could be good wisdom to think through, some of them turn into the Ten Commandments of Adoption. That if you do not follow them, you will be condemned. And people will look down on you, and people will say, well, you did it wrong, you broke the laws, you just wait. And, and And I think to myself, what have we done? We're taking the compassionate heart of God seen in the commands of caring for orphans, and we have crushed it by adding man-made rules and compassion. We're 2,000 years later still doing the same thing the Pharisees did. The Sabbath was meant for its mercy, not burdens. Why would we ever do that with the commands of God? It's that inward Pharisee working within us. So that's kind of what the Pharisees are doing. And so Jesus, he's going to challenge them. He's going to go right at them. Look what he does in verse 11 and 12. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? This is kind of funny. This is even hilarious. So the religious leaders, they gather around, they go, okay, what constitutes work on the Sabbath? Okay, what if our sheep falls into a pit? What should we do? And some said, you leave it in the pit, and you get it out the next day. 
But while it is in the pit, you can throw food to it so it can stay alive. Stay alive, sheep. Just throw it food. That, that wouldn't be work. Or if it's in the pit, some thought, no, you can like throw some clothes down in there. And so maybe you can create a ramp and he'll go up the ramp. And so he can get out. And, and, and Jesus is like, okay, if most of you agree that you can care for a sheep, how much more a man who's suffering? How much greater are humans than animals? And if you can care for your animals, why can't you care from, from humans? It's, it's almost like it, even, it just makes sense to you. He said, so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Sabbath is just about not working. It's about also doing good. Kind of as an aside, I don't want to get into all the Sabbath discussion today. Our Sabbath that we observe is, is today, the Lord's Day. And it's, and it's not just a day we say, okay, we're going to rest, but it's, it's also a day where we can do good. We can show mercy and compassion to others, deeds of justice and, and kindness. And that's what Jesus is doing. And look what he does in verse 13. So he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and he was restored, healthy like the other. So the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus, he defies their man-made rules, and he demonstrates compassion. And you would think the Pharisees would go, whoa, that was a really cool healing. You are Lord of the Sabbath. Thank you for having compassion on that man. We've been seeing him here for years. He's now healed, but no. What do they want to do? They want to kill him. Look at verse 14 and 16. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him and healed them all. And he ordered them not to make him known. So the Pharisees, they are fuming. And you want to know why they're fuming? Because Jesus not only defied their authority, but Jesus claimed greater authority. Jesus is making these, these claims that only God should make. And to these Pharisees, it's blasphemy. And so they want to bring him down. They want to destroy him. Eventually, this is going to lead to his death. And this is what, this is what they want to do. And it's, it seems kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? It's like, why would they want to kill Jesus for that? But I, I was thinking this week that I and, and you, we can have this same inward Pharisee, where people, if they don't follow our rules, the rules that we create, our man-made rules, then we kind of want to take them out. We, we kind of want to crush them. We kind of want to uh, hope for their downfall. And it's, it's, it's amazing how this inward Phariseeism, it can exist in churches. Before the time of many of you, remember, maybe some of you who were um, floating around in churches back in the 80s, uh, you were in, in, in something, uh, maybe, uh, God didn't happen in our church, but many churches were experiencing this concept of worship wars where you, you know, had the people that wanted only hymns, those who wanted only contemporary music, and they were kind of just going at each other, throwing stuff at each other and saying bad things about each, each side. And all they wanted was uh, for the other side to lose and to be crushed or to at least go across the street and start another church. <laughs> and so that was kind of a, it was, it was really ugly within the church. Uh, where this inward Pharisee can say, look, here's the externals, here are the way things should be, and if they're not that way, then you must be crushed. For example, my, last night, 
I took my family to, to Willow Creek, and we saw a concert uh, of David Crowder. We've, we've sung David Crowder and his band for years, many years, and we sing a lot of their songs on Sunday morning, uh, like, Oh, Praise Him, or Oh, How He Loves Us, and many of you love his music. So I took my kids there last night, and, and they saw him, and they're like, Oh, my goodness, is, is that David Crowder? They're like, Whoa, kind of catch them off guard. And for many of you who've been singing his songs for a year, you may think, Wow, he's just, he, he probably looks like Stephen Curtis Chapman or something. He probably just this clean-cut, nice-looking guy. But if you ever seen David Crowder, let me put you a poem for you. That's tame. Last night, he had even more bushy hair. And a, you're like, whoa, would you, would you let that guy lead worship at your church? It's like, wow, that, that's externals, right? It's like, we got these rules. Like, no, we can't have someone who looks like that lead worship. I mean, that guy can write music. That guy can lead us in, in worship. And that's just an example of how we always like to have these rules of the way things should be, these man-made rules. And if they don't fall into place, we, 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 we want the other side or the other people to lose. And, and we still do that within our church. We do. We, we have, we have, it happens in churches across America where there's always this debate. Praise God it's not going in our church. But there, there can be debate. Okay, we have kids. How should kids be schooled? Should they go to private school? Should they go to homeschool? Or, or, or should they be in public school? And then you've got the people that have all these debates and they have all their opinions and everything. And it's almost like they're hoping for those who disagree with them that their kids turn out bad. It's almost like it validates their position. Since they didn't follow our rules and do it our way, well, we hope they turn out bad and we'll feel better. And the same thing happens with the way that we spend money. We have disagreements on how we spend money within the body of Christ. How should we spend money? How do you spend money? How do you, you budget? You don't budget? And you kind of hope that someone that doesn't do it like you, that goes bankrupt or something. It's like you, you, it would validate you if they fail. That's that inward Pharisee. That inward Pharisee is, is in all of us. It's like we, we hope others, if they don't follow our rules, that they will just somehow fail. I mean, you take the issue of, of alcohol. I mean, there, there are people who have different opinions within this church on whether you know, Christians should be drinking or, or not drinking. And sometimes for those who believe that Christians shouldn't drink, and when you sit around and you see other Christians drinking, you, sometimes you even kind of hope they get sick, right? It's like, I just hope you get sick. You're breaking the rules. It's like this inward Pharisee coming up where people do not do it like you. in this inward Pharisee, I'm telling you what, it can be brutal. We can be so brutal to others. And Jesus is feeling this heat, and he pulls away. He withdraws. And as he withdraws, the crowd is still around him. He knows it's not his time for death yet, so he, he withdraws. He's still, he's still healing people. And when he heals them, he says, don't, don't you go tell anybody. You be quiet because you don't know the whole story yet. You may think I'm just here to overthrow Rome or I'm just some spectacular healer. So he heals them. He tells them to be quiet because they don't know who he is yet. And so they don't have this full picture. So get this. He withdraws from confrontation and he hushes people. Shh, don't talk about me. He withdraws from confrontation and he hushes people not to talk about him. And then what's interesting, Matthew takes this and says, what Jesus is doing is fulfilling prophecy by withdrawing and hushing people. Because that is what the book of Isaiah says the Messiah is going to do. In fact, it's from Isaiah chapter 42, 1 through 4, that when the, the God's servant shows up on the scene, he's going to minister to Israel and he's going to minister to nations. 
And one of the things that he's going to do, he's going to do this withdrawal concept and this hushing people. Let's start looking at this character of the servant as we finish up here in verse 18. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. These are familiar concepts to you. The Father chose Jesus for this mission. The Father's pleased with Jesus. We know that he's pleased. We see that as baptism and the transfiguration. So the Son is also spirit-empowered. We know that from the baptism. And he's on a mission to proclaim justice and hope to the Gentiles. So he's got this gospel message. We know that salvation is here for the nations if they will repent. And they will, if they do not repent, they will face judgment. So we're familiar with these ideas. But are you as familiar with the rest of the description of the Messiah. Look at verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He's not here to throw down with anybody. He's not here to throw down with the Pharisees. He's not here to take the argument out to the streets to prove that he is right. And he's not here to gather this really big crowd in the streets so that he can be publicly proclaimed. No, he's withdrawing from the Pharisees and he's, he's hushing the crowd. He has a different kind of mission. And his mission is, is one of compassion. It's one of gentleness. And it's a mission that is eventually going to lead to the cross. Look at verses 20 and 21. A bruised reed. He will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. For those of you who don't like to cross over metaphors very well, it's talking about people, a bruised reed and a smoldering wick. It's describing people who are suffering and are about the lowest of the low. Uh, a, a bruised reed, uh, you know, the reeds are often used to carry things, but a bruised one is pretty much fragile and it's just about to be snapped and break and you think about a light or a smoldering wick is smoking and it's it's just about to go out so you have this reed and and this this wick that seem beyond use and what does Jesus do he enters the picture and he ministers to those who are damaged goods and there's some of you here that you know about Jesus? Do you know that he is gentle and he brings victory through his life, death, and resurrection? But I know that there are some of you here that are suffering so much that you are about to snap. That's just a reality for you. It's something you deal with right now. You are about to snap. I don't know what you're dealing with, but you're just like, I'm about to snap. And the last thing you need is a Pharisee to come into your life and to say, you know what your problem is? Your problem is that you do not read the Bible enough. Snap. You know what your problem is? Is that you just don't pray enough. Snap. And what approach do we have of Jesus? He says, come to me, come on. Come on, come to me. Come to me. I, I know what you're going through. Come to me. I, I'll forgive you your sins through my life, death, and death. I, I'll, I'll give you a different yoke. I, I'll, I'll show you how to live. Come to me. Come to me. I, I'll be gentle. I'm not going to be given, putting all these pointless man-made rules. Come, come to me. 
And, and, and this is glorious. Like, th- this is how he deals with us. This is how he deals with me. Over, over the past few weeks, I, I, don't, I don't know, I, I've, I'm, probably over the past two and a half weeks, I've kind of been off. You ever get off in life? Like, I'm just off. And, and I think part of the reason is I'm, I'm, I'm just worn down. And, and when you get worn down, you know what happens. You, you, get, you get kind of physically tired. You get emotionally tired. And so I, I've just been off. And I'm so glad that Jesus doesn't come up to me and pile it on. And say, I'm just going to snap you. I'm going to snuff you out. It, 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 what, what does he do? He says, come to me. Come to me and you will find rest for your soul. Come to me, you'll find forgiveness for your sin. Come to me, take my yoke. I'm going to show you how to live. Come to me and in me, he's saying, in, in himself is life. And you know what he wants us to do? He wants us to show the same grace and gentleness and compassion and mercy to others who are just about to be snapped or just about to be snuffed out. This past Wednesday or Thursday, I forgot what day it was, I was, I was reading about this article about the worst drought in the Horn of Africa in decades. I don't know if you've seen this. It's not like it's making our newspaper. The worst drought in the portions of the Horn of Africa, it's been in, in decades. I, I, you talk about some bruised reeds, talking about some smoldering wicks, both physically and spiritually. People over there are suffering. I, I've been there twice this past year. It's, it's a tough area. And to think a drought is hitting some of those portions. So I'm, re- I'm reading this article, and I don't know who ever thought of the idea that after article uh, online that you have to have a comment section. Who ever thought of that idea? Let's have comments on a news article. That was not a very good idea. Because in, uh, in, another good idea is to don't read the comments. Don't read those comments. I don't know what I was doing. So I'm reading the comments after this article, and some of the comments, I mean, it seems like most of the comments are are, are saying things like, let them starve. They deserve it. They deserve it because of their politics. Oh, they deserve it because of their culture foolishness. If they would just get their act together, they wouldn't be having these problems decade after decade. If they would just follow the rules they'd be better off. It's like, wow. It was the response of a Pharisee. It was amazing. And it wasn't the response or the heart of Jesus. Jesus, we moved with compassion to move to those who are suffering physically and spiritually. Jesus, we moved to gentleness. He wouldn't be there to snap them or to snuff them out. And that's, that's where he is calling us to live as well. He's calling us to live that way with our, our, for those of you who have kids and they misbehave, it's not like crush, snap, even though that's what you want to do often. When those of you who are married, you want to lay down the law with your spouse, if you would just follow the rules, it's like we do the same thing with, with people in church. Just follow the rules and you'll be all right. Please come for compassion and mercy and gentleness that we've received from him to be, to be stirred up in us for others. And as I, I was thinking through this, I think what we need is forgiveness and transformation. 
I, I think if, I, I just wonder, have any of you ever repented of your inward Pharisee? Have you ever repented of your man-made crushing of others through, through these rules that you've just created? Did you know that, that Jesus went to the cross and took our sins of this inward Pharisee? our sins of judgment and legalism. And he went to the cross and he died in our place and he stood condemned for our actions and our attitudes that crush others. And when he sees us, he had mercy on us. And what he, well, you know what he should have done to us? He should have snapped us and he should have snuffed us out. But through him we can receive forgiveness and the cross through faith. And we want to ask him to transform us and fill us with the Spirit so we can show mercy to others. And I think there's no better time to do that than what we're going to do today in the Lord's Supper. As we're about to take the Lord's Supper, it's an opportunity for us to repent of this inward Pharisee judgment, whether it's been to our spouse or to our kids or to our friends, or we're just trying to lay down the man-made law and we're not moving toward them with compassion and kindness. We can repent of that and refine forgiveness. But what we also do during the prayer time uh, is we have prayer after the communion where the elders can, can pray for you because there are many of you who are bruised reeds and you are this, this smoldering wick that you're about to go out and you're pretty much at the end of, what's, of your, like, what you can handle, right? And you can come up for prayer. And we'll call upon the Lord to have mercy on you and deal with you gently. So let's just start going to a time of prayer as we prepare our hearts for this communion time. Lord, we praise you that you are the merciful servant, the merciful servant who has compassion upon us, who calls us to take up your yoke upon us and learn from you, for you're gentle and lowly in heart. You're the one who gives us rest for our souls and the forgiveness of our sins. For your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Lord, you know of the bruised reeds in here. And I know that you will not break them in the smoldering wick. You will not quench them. And you will bring justice to victory. You will show victory in the cross and the resurrection. And I just ask that you administer to us right now that you're... you're you are dealing with us gently, even though our friends and family members may point the finger or, or raise the eyebrow and condemn us, that we find forgiveness and grace in you when we repent. And I ask that you do a, amazing work in our hearts right now during this time. In Jesus' name, amen.